Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. On November 21st, Buckner Retirement Services held the official grand opening for Ventana, a $240 million high-rise continuing care retirement community in Dallas. Even as Buckner is launching this new addition to its portfolio, the organization is closing on the sale of its historic East Dallas campus, originally opened in 1954. In this episode, you'll hear from Charlie Wilson, a senior vice president with Buckner International, who leads the nonprofit's retirement services business. Hear how Ventana is partnering with a high-profile chef, a large health system, and a wellness pioneer, as well as why the organization decided to sell its East Dallas property and how he thinks nonprofits can best position themselves for the future. Before we hear that interview, I'd like to tell you about two upcoming senior housing news events, Dished and Build. Our culinary event, Dished, is on March 12th in Chicago. This annual event hosts 200 plus attendees in food service, culinary operations, and management in senior living across the continuum. The full day event will have speakers from across the country, food, hospitality, and a full serving of fun. Then, on May 6th, SHN presents BUILD, a full-day event featuring thought leaders and C-suite executives discussing the future of development in senior living. Network with owners, operators, developers, investors, architects, designers, and more at this event dedicated to the trends shaping the future of senior housing development. For more information on these events, visit seniorhousingnews.com forward slash events. And now my interview with Charlie Wilson. Senior Vice President with Buckner Retirement Services. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we've got a lot that I want to touch on, but to start, I want to jump right in and talk about the Ventana project that's going up in Dallas, just because I'm really excited about what's going on there. This is a ground-up development. It's an urban high-rise CCRC or Life Plan Community. It's been years in the making, I know, and I think it's an interesting project for a variety of reasons. So to start, can you just give a little background on how the project first came about? Sure. Buckner, our organization, has been here in Dallas for 140 years. We're a not-for-profit. Started out as a children's ministry, and still that's a major focus. But we had been looking to do something in Dallas for probably for the last 20 years. And we had a specific area when we wanted to the project to be in and just really hadn't had the right opportunity. We looked at a number of things. And then after 2009 and the recession, I think it presented an opportunity to really kind of look for land, find a great location with a good price on the land purchase. And in 2012, we were able to purchase a, a piece of property where Ventana stands today. And where in Dallas is it? So we're on the west corner of Northwest Highway and Central Expressway, I-75. It's a major corridor, goes up through downtown to North Dallas and on up to Oklahoma. And Northwest Highway is also a major kind of cross street there. A lot of, I guess, shopping and restaurants and just really ideally located. Right. And the number that we've reported is that it's a $140 million project. Can you confirm that? And it does, is it, does that include the land acquisition price? That's the construction cost for the project. The total financing, the total amount we financed was $240 million. And it's a 
you know, bond finance package that included the construction, the land, the, you know, the marketing costs. It's a life care community, which has significant upfront costs for sales and just kind of all in price of the community. Right. And just in terms of the design, there are renderings up on on the Buckner website, so people can check that out if they're curious. But it looks like a really sleek design, very modern, lots of amenities, looks like three dining venues, anything you'd call out in terms of the design aspects that you're excited about and and how large is is the building? So just the location, I think we really wanted to go with more of a kind of a modern design. So there's a lot of glass curtain wall construction and two 12-story towers on on top of a four-story podium with uh, two parking garages underneath parking levels. Total square feet is around uh, 600 and some thousand total square feet. Air-conditioned square feet is 500,000 square feet. And just on that location, you know, this building's it's going to be there for many years. So we wanted to really create something that would enhance the Dallas skyline and add to it. That'd be kind of memorable for people, make it a, I think a desirable place when people see it, they, it kind of piques their interest. So when you look at the buildings, the two towers, they kind of offset each other. They have little curves to them that kind of maximizes the views from each tower. Uh, also gives it a sleek appearance that isn't, you know, boxy kind of construction. And it just, I think it's uh, real appealing. And I think it adds a lot to the to the Dallas skyline in that area. Right. Who's doing the architecture? D2 architecture here in Dallas. Oh, sure. Uh, and how many units is it? Total of 325 units. There's 189 independent living apartments. 72 skilled nursing, 24 of which are rehab-focused, and 48 of those are long-term care in a small house format where the kitchen there's a kitchen in each household, 12 apartment households in that 48 beds, 38 assisted living apartments, and then 26 memory care. Got it. So one of the things that we've been reporting on pretty frequently as this project has come to life are all the partnerships that you've been able to forge with, I think, some really interesting and high-profile people, institutions. So I want to dig into that aspect of, of how the building's going to operate. Um, maybe we can start with Stephen Piles. He's a chef. He's created 22 restaurants in five cities over the past 30 years. This is from his mm-hmm. website. And he's behind Flora Street Cafe in Dallas, which I know a lot of people have heard of. Bon Appetit magazine said he almost single-handedly changed the cooking scene in Texas. So he's a big get to have associated with the community, I think. How did you get him on board and what's he going to do to shape the dining? So we're very fortunate to to work with Chef Piles. Our um, offices are in downtown Dallas, which we're about a block and a half from Flora Street Cafe. So over the years, I've you know, been very familiar with him and his work and eating at his restaurants. He's had a couple different restaurants near us and, and uh, they're always excellent. So, you know, as we were creating this this product, we were really trying to think about, you know, who we could partner with that would be, you know, well known in this market to our constituents and, you know, just a really good partner overall. 
And Stephen Piles, if you've ever met him, he's just a wonderful guy, great to work with. He's very interested in understanding our business and, and what we're trying to accomplish and adding value to that. He's done a wonderful job with the menus, with helping us with the training and really creating kind of that, uh, I really think it's a level above anything I've seen in senior living. It's really unique. And so far, we have 140 individuals that have moved into Ventana. And so far, the feedback is really good. So we're, we're excited about that partnership. And I think it's going to it's going to work well for him and for us. And he says, you know, that many of the people that are moving in are, are customers that, you know, he's known for years. And, and uh, so he's just continuing to meet their needs where they're at. That's really interesting uh, that he knows some of these residents as customers. I guess I'm wondering what the pitch was to him to get involved in senior living and if he knew at the outset that maybe there would be this crossover in clientele or if there were some other aspects of working in a senior housing setting that maybe appealed to him. So when we first, uh, actually we, we first met him at his restaurant, there was a group of us having lunch there and had a conversation with him and told him about what we were doing where it was located, what we were trying to accomplish with Ventana. And he seemed interested, wanted to look into it some more. We had a follow-up conversation and sat down and actually discussed how we saw how this arrangement might work. You know, he wasn't super familiar with exactly how we, you know, run our dining programs. We have a meal credit and people can spend that down however they want in the different dining rooms on our campus. You know, we talked about whether we'd have it just open to the public, and that was one of the restrictions we had with the neighborhood there. They were concerned about traffic, and, and so we don't have any outside public except for friends of guests of the members that live there. And so we just talked through the program with him and how we how it was set up, and once he understood that, then I think just given the... You know, the location, I think he did mention that it was likely that these people were going to be existing customers of his. And he has a very creative mind and, and just kind of thought through that process. And, you know, I think they'll continue to go to his restaurant, but enjoy what he has to offer in our community at the same time. So it sounds like it definitely is a marketing perk for the community to have his name associated with it. Is that fair to say? Oh, yes. I think it's um, really a great marketing benefit to Ventana to be associated with Stephen Piles. Right. And just in terms of how the relationship does work, is he basically working on like as a consultant basis or what is that relationship? It's a consultant basis. He's not managing the program. He creates the menus. He helps us with, uh, in particular, selection of the chef at, at Ventana. And he's also helped us with the branding. We have his name on, on the signage associated with each of our dining venues. And he's also helped us with training. He's kind of gone above and beyond that as we've, you know, gone through startup, you know, a startup of a building this size is a pretty big task. And he's uh, helped provide staff for training and support along the way. But it's, but it's really a more of a consulting versus 
an agreement where he actually manages the day-to-day operations and the and has the staff on his payroll. He he doesn't have the staff on his payroll. Got it. So another high-profile partnership that I wanted to, to talk about is with Baylor, Scott, and White. This is one of the largest nonprofit health systems in the country, I believe. It has 48 hospitals, more than 800 patient care sites. Uh, so same question there. Can you talk about how this partnership came about and then what Baylor, Scott, and White's involvement consists of? Sure. This is a little different. We've had a relationship with Baylor, Scott, and White going back to its very roots. Father Buckner was a Baptist minister. He's the founder of of Buckner. And 140 years ago, he was involved in the initial startup of the first Baylor Hospital near downtown Dallas. And they have a little rotunda that has kind of their history. And there's a picture of him and some other gentlemen there. So, those ties are pretty deep. Over the years, we've really worked with Baylor on different programs. But, you know, more recently in an, another community we had in Dallas that we've recently closed, they provided uh, chaplaincy services for us. And so as we were planning Ventana, we wanted to, not just because of our long history with Baylor, but because of their reputation of high quality here in Dallas. We wanted to really partner with the best. And so immediately we thought of them and sat down and had conversations about how we could partner. Specifically, they're providing a chaplain for Ventana, which is unique because in most of our other communities, we provide that service ourselves. And so when the chaplain goes on vacation, there's, you know, it's hard to get coverage for that, but uh, with Baylor, they have a deep system and they can help provide coverage in those instances and training that we're not able to provide with our size system. We also are contracting with them for their medical director for Ventana. So that's a really positive thing. Uh, they have a house calls program that we anticipate uh, partnering with them on. And they have a, a network where we're still in negotiations to to get this set, but they have a ACO. So I think there's going to be some ways we can partner with them on some of their, as one of their post-acute uh, providers in their network. Got it. So I guess I could said another question I had, which is I know Baylor also has a health plan. So I was wondering if you anticipate that residents of Ventana, uh, a number of them will be on that plan. And if that might be part of the value for Baylor, Scott and White and working with Buckner is being able to have that kind of on-site management of a large patient population to maximize outcomes, reduce costs, things like that. Uh, That's certainly one of our goals with Baylor. And I think, of course, the members that live at Ventana, they likely will see Baylor as one of the more quality providers and plans that they could be a part of. And so that could very well happen as well. Right. And it sounds like Buckner had a a kind of pre-existing relationship with Baylor going back, like you said, all the way to the roots of the health system. So it sounds like maybe you had a kind of in with, with the health system. But I know that in talking with other people in the space, it's becoming more and more desirable uh, on the part of senior housing providers to have partnerships with health systems. And they're starting to see 
more interest in the past. You know, in the past, they might have had trouble getting the meeting with the right decision makers or trouble pitching their value and their place within the health system overall to some of these large organizations. Do you think that there is that maybe Baylor was more receptive than it might have been in the past, that there's been an evolving appreciation of senior housing, and uh, maybe not just Baylor, but overall with some of these healthcare providers that are out there? So with Baylor, again, we've always had a close relationship, but you know we have uh, six retirement communities all in Texas. And in some of our markets, we really, you know, it's a little tougher to get entry into uh, that arena with the health system and but but I think they're recognizing that they really have to have quality partnerships with the post acute world out there and that's been happening for some time now. I think you know our communities are recognized as as providing quality care and so that's something that's been occurring for a while now and and I think it's it's kind of more how we do business nowadays versus, you know, can we get in to talk to them like it was a few years ago? Got it. So one more partnership I wanted to discuss is with Cooper Wellness Strategies, which is affiliated with Cooper Aerobics. The founder of that organization is credited with coining the term aerobics. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool. What is, what's this partnership going to bring to Ventana? So Dr. Kenneth Cooper, he's really a pioneer in 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 the field. In fact, you know, some of the articles I read as we were looking at the relationship and, and our discussions with him back in the 60s, he, uh, you know, was having debates about with other other physicians that were like, you know, your heart only has so many beats in a lifetime. So why would you exercise and, you know, waste those heartbeats, <laughs> you know, which is, <laughs> seems really kind of archaic to us nowadays. But uh, he was a pioneer in, in the field in the aerobic field. He is, I think, he's known around the world. But in Dallas, he's really a kind of a rock star. And the um, Cooper Institute, uh, they have a campus. Not it's probably maybe five miles from our campus, maybe not quite that far. Beautiful campus. I've been there myself and had their day-long physical. They give you a full workup and, and put you on a, a program that's right for you. Really great service that they offer. We really targeted them from the very beginning to to partner with on the wellness side because many of our members that live at Ventana now have either been to the Cooper Institute for their physicals, or they've been, had memberships there with ongoing exercise programs. And so just having that, I think, again, for branding purposes for us, but also for them, they're continuing to meet the needs of their clients they've had over the years in our building, much like Stephen Piles. So it's kind of worked out for both of us. They're actually managing the wellness program. So each member that comes in, if they choose, they can go through kind of a an assessment and get set up on a program that's unique for them that meets their needs. And I think it's really been a critical relationship that's benefited us in our marketing efforts here in Dallas, but also has real meaning and, and benefit to the people that live there. Yeah, that's really cool. So... 
Do you think that you could have brought all these partners on board to a senior housing project, say, 10 years ago? It just seems really striking to me that you have so many high-profile, well-known organizations that were willing to sign on and put their name, associate their name with this project. 10 years ago, I think it'd be kind of tough. I mean, people are starting to view senior living differently. But I think even 10 years ago, still in a lot of people's minds, senior living was kind of a you know, they had an image of a nursing home, you know, with this. And I think maybe even today it might be a little bit challenging, but because of the location, the way the product the product looks, I mean, we've had uh, 20-somethings, you know, inquiring, wanting to move into our building. So it's a very good-looking building, great location. I think that makes a difference. Um, and maybe in people's minds, there's been a shift in how they view senior living. And do you think that's going to be kind of table stakes going forward? I've talked to some other people in the industry who really are hitting on the concept of integration, integration, integration into the community in various ways. And um, they think that especially with the boomers coming uh, into senior housing, they really want to be seeing the same doctors, having the same wellness experiences eating the same types of food um, that they have been throughout their lives and they're not going to want to feel like they're getting uh, the senior housing downgrade or something like that when they move into the community. Do you think there's fairness in that uh, sort of vision for the future? Yeah, I think people are looking, it's becoming, in my, yeah, I think it's, it's more of a, if you can appeal to the lifestyle piece of it versus the need healthcare side of things, then you're going to be able to capture younger seniors that are really, you know, wanting to embrace life and not give up on anything. And that's what we're trying to do. I'm not sure where it's going to go exactly, but this is the right direction. I think it'll keep going this way. Certainly baby boomers, you know, they're going to want to have options. They're going to want to be connected to their churches, their friends, their doctors, the, you know, everything they've had and plus more. So, I think you're right. We've got to keep going this way. And I don't, I don't see it going backwards for sure. Yeah. So I want to maybe zoom out a little bit and talk about some big picture issues here. I just came from leading age. I think you were there as well. And I heard um, human good CEO, John Cochran speak really passionately about what he considers to be the sort of state of play right now uh, among nonprofit senior housing providers. And he said, he's, I'm quoting him, irritated and horrified. And he was mm-hmm. talking about how much market share in senior housing is controlled by for-profits these days. Not that he thinks for-profits are evil or anything, but he mm-hmm. was dismayed at um, what he thought said nonprofits were ceding too much ground, basically, to for-profits because he thinks that nonprofits offer a unique sort of value proposition to residents. And he was really pushing for the case that nonprofits need to take more risk and scale more swiftly. So um, I'm wondering if you, what you make of his comments and if you agree with them, if you would uh, take issue with anything that he said. So I didn't get to hear him speak, but I was able to sit down and have lunch with him at the Leading Age Texas conference. Uh, I think it was last year. You know, he's very visionary. He's got a great organization. I think that's been the challenge that we've been looking at is how do how do the for how do the not for profits 
grow and scale up as quickly as the for-profits do. And I still don't, I still haven't seen answers out there. I know they're doing a lot of kind of mergers with their organization and acquisitions, but the new product, you know, the, the best example I've seen, we spent, I've made two trips with our group up to Presbyterian Homes and Services in Minneapolis area. Mm-hmm. And they're up to 40 some communities. They have a growth plan to develop, uh, you know, two or three communities a year. And they showed us their pipeline that are in the works. It's very impressive. I think other not for profits need to look at that and, and see what, you know, learn from them. I know in Texas, we have another group, Methodist Retirement Communities, that has an aggressive growth plan and that they've been executing. The challenge I think we have is we have to have good, clear alignment with the board of directors. In the not-for-profit sector, we tend to be, as John said, we tend to be risk-adverse, very slow to make decisions. But I think if we can you know, compartmentalize our risk and if we develop a strategy with our boards that allows management to work within certain parameters to be able to grow our mission through new communities, we could do a whole lot more. Financing, again, that's another challenging area. Uh, traditionally, we use uh, bond financing. There's advantages and disadvantages. Uh, I think, you know, if you're doing an entry fee community, the pre-sales, the time to market related to getting the pre-sales necessary for financing can be challenging. We need to figure out the the rental market. Typically with that, you can start working on the project before you've actually started your sales effort. So your upfront costs are lower. And so there's those are some of the challenges that we have, but I agree with John that we're missing a big opportunity right now because the for profits are able to move quickly, step in there and you know, they get the capital behind them to to be aggressive. If you look at the demographics over the years, there's an article out there, I think health affairs, uh, a health affairs article, the forgotten middle. Mm-hmm, and it talk, mm-hmm. talks about the the middle market growing from currently about 7 million seniors to 14 million seniors. And I want to say it's by 20, I don't know if it's 2030 or exactly when, but you know, there's, there's going to be a tremendous opportunity for for-profits and not-for-profits. And I don't think that we can all, you know, if we're working our hardest, fill the need of the amount of units that are needed. So it's an interesting time and and the not-for-profits really need to focus on making sure that they've got a good strategy that's aggressive and have alignment with the board so they can execute. And you brought up the rental market as a, as a place where maybe growth can happen more than it has in the past for nonprofits. And mm-hmm. also it seems to me like uh, maybe if sort of associated with that, uh, a step away from these huge life plan communities that take so much capital and so much time to bring to market. Um, do you think that there's some resistance 
to going to smaller rental communities on the part of nonprofits? Is there some impediment there where they don't see how it aligns with their missions? Or do you think it's just the, historically the, the sector has been so focused on life plan communities that everyone's just sort of uh, the inertia is taking people uh, down that road and they just need to sort of shake things up? Well, I don't think it's... Uh, it- the emission alignment is, at least for our organization and probably likely a lot of other not-for-profits, is more aligned with the middle market than these larger, mm-hmm. more luxurious entry fee communities. Mm-hmm. So that's I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is financing. With an entry fee community, You know, we typically have a continuum of care that goes from independent living, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing. You're seeing a lot of the for-profits focus on independent living, assisted living, and memory care and kind of leave out the skilled nursing. And I think uh, many of the communities that I saw in Minnesota were were the ILAL model. The challenge with the rental community is you don't have the entry fees that help pay down some of that long-term debt. So when you're doing a rental community, you really have to make sure your cost of, you know, your construction costs is very efficient. Your operating costs are more efficient to make it work financially. If you look at the entry fee communities, a lot of those communities are, you know, have a lot of amenities like Ventana, uh, for instance, has, you know, we have three different restaurants in there. That's probably not something you can afford to do in a rental community because you can't take on all the debt associated with that square footage. So that's, I think, the biggest piece is the managing the construction costs, the operating budget, and the, the ability to get financing. Just speaking about Buckner specifically, I think about six communities in Texas. What's your sort of growth outlook and how are you thinking about expanding in the years ahead? So we had a, we developed a plan in 2011 with our board and, and largely we've executed all that. It, it called for, uh, at, at Ventana, it called for expanding our existing communities. So we've completed that plan. This year we've been working through with our board, kind of our strategic direction. We're culminating that with a meeting in January and, uh, I think there'll still be some work after that. But I think, you know, for us, the, the main thing is to get alignment with our, with our board on what direction, you know, we're going to head for the next 10 years. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's likely we're going to land that we really want to reach down into that middle market. We can leverage the Ventana brand. And I think there's a lot of things we can do in the middle market to help meet that need. Most of our other communities are rental communities. So we've, we've just got to figure out the vehicle to accomplish that and continue to grow. Right. And I think maybe earlier in our conversation, you referred to a community that had recently closed. Did I hear you correctly? Was there one that you guys uh, shut down? Yeah, that was our, uh, really our historic campus in East Dallas. It was opened in 1954. And I think it was 2016, we finally uh, closed the campus. So we're actually, we'd looked for some ways to reuse, repurpose the the property. We explored, uh, you know, tax credit, senior housing. It's really complicated and you got to check all the boxes to get your score high enough to get the financing. We just weren't able to get it 
get it done. So we're actually selling that property. Should close in the next 30 days. But that was, you know, that was a little tough for the organization to close our historic campus. But I think that's something that as not-for-profits, we need to do a better job of as well, being able to recognize when you have a campus that's outdated, maybe the market's not right anymore there at that location, and being able to make hard decisions. Yeah, that was the subject, again, that came up at Leading Age. And specifically, some folks were talking about this challenge, that there are some buildings that it's easier to give up, but a lot of nonprofits have these sort of the jewel of their organization that are beautiful, often campuses that have a lot of history behind them that have been with the the organization sometimes for decades, many decades, hundreds of years even, or not hundreds, mm-hmm. but you know, 150 years sometimes, but it's pushing almost. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to let go of those, even if it, all the signs point to doing that. So did it reach a sort of crisis point where it just became clear that action had to be taken? Or how did the board make that difficult decision in the case of Buckner? Well, this isn't a very good example. I think it's probably a good case study of maybe, if you want to say it positively, how we could do it better in the future. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, what happened there, we... The campus slowly, we had census issues. We did a couple different market studies, you know, looking at trying to rebuild the campus, uh, reposition it. And, you know, there wasn't any clear indication that, that would be successful, that we could attract the, the market to support the debt needed to reposition it. So we kind of, you know, had a hard time with that and and couldn't make a decision until the occupancy became so low and it really became such a financial drain that we decided, you know, are we being good stewards of, you know, our assets and our money? Because the the amount of cash that we're putting into that campus to kind of supplement it could have benefited, you know, a lot of people. We could have, you know, built other campuses to benefit many more seniors. So we got to the point where we really were pushed into a corner and had to make a decision. I think in retrospect, you know, we've talked about it with the board and and said, you know, we need to be looking at our campuses with a longer term horizon, not expecting a campus to necessarily last for 60 years. There's probably a, a life expectancy where we need to make decisions sooner, just being better stewards of our resources and what we have. But it's difficult for a mission-minded organization with a big heart for the people we serve. But I think we're in a good place now. And I think in the future, we'll probably make those decisions a little better. That's interesting. Uh, It seems like it must be kind of a monkey off the back of the organization. And now you can focus on sort of looking more to the future without having that drag. That's really a big thing, you know, for management, because you'll spend a lot of time on a poor performing campus that kind of weighs down the whole organization. So you're exactly right. With the residents who were living there, were you able to, were they able to move to other Buckner communities or how how did that side of it work? So when we did that, we really tried to gave that as an option. I think we actually had a few that did, but the majority of people, you know, they, they want to stay close to where they're used to and maybe have friends and family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, you know, we tried to make sure we did it the right way and offered uh, to assist people 
you know, we have a senior care and assistance program in our communities, but where we help seniors that don't have the funds. But when we closed that campus, we decided to extend that program to continue to assist uh, people that maybe couldn't afford a community near them. And we did that for, I think, up to a 12-month period after the closure of the campus. Got it. And is that land still on the market or has that been sold already? Uh, It's under contract. Uh, We should close in the next 30 days. All right. Well, I think we're uh, probably at the end of our time, but I want to at least get a little bit of your personal story. Can you talk about how you first came to senior living? I was in school getting my bachelor in business administration back in the early 90s. And I actually went to a hospital and to do an internship. And I did it, spent a year at the hospital, did the internship and continued to work there part time while I was in school. I was kind of, you know, when you're young, you're anxious to make a difference. And I, I felt like it would take a while. And my dad was a physician and a medical director of a nursing, a couple nursing homes up in the Panhandle of Texas. And so I had done EKGs for him in nursing homes, and I felt like that environment needed change. I also had a friend that I went to school with who's in the industry that he was involved in the long-term care program at the university I was at. And so I checked that out got involved with it. And I think the main reason was I just felt like I would, there was a lot of need there and I could make a difference quicker. And I was used to working with older people. So that's kind of what drew me to it. And when did you, when did you join Buckner? I uh, joined Buckner in 2000. Prior to that, I was with a couple other organizations here in the Metroplex, Trinity Terrace in Fort Worth who's owned by Pacific Retirement Services out of Oregon and D.C. Young here in Dallas. Right. Anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to share in terms of uh, future plans or anything about Ventana, anything at all? No, I, I appreciate the time. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. All right. Likewise. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Have a good day. And that does it for this episode of Transform. Don't forget to follow our two upcoming events, Dished and Build, online at seniorhousingnews.com forward slash events. I'm Tim Mullaney. Thanks for listening.